Cards, Conversations from the Frontlines of Climate Change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, an assistant professor, although hopefully not much longer, my tenure package is in review, of paleoecology at the University of Maine. In today's episode, we'll be talking about some scary new research about clouds, the role of women and girls in solving one of our most pressing environmental problems, and we are going to be welcoming who I hope will be one of our brand new co-hosts to join me in breaking all of this down. I'm really excited to introduce Mary Anais Hegler. Don't worry, Ramesh Langani and Sarah Myrie aren't going anywhere. We're just excited to rotate some new voices into our regular lineup. Mary is Publications Director for the Natural Resource Defense Council, but she's actually also an amazing writer herself. In fact, I first ran into Mary on Twitter when I started encountering some of her incredible writings on race and the environment, including a recent hard-hitting and much-needed piece titled, Sorry Y'all, But Climate Change Ain't the First Existential Threat. If you haven't checked out her Medium page, we will include a link in our show notes, so definitely follow up with that. Anyway, I knew that we had to get her on the show somehow, and now my evil plot has come to fruition. Uh, Welcome to Warm Regards, Mary. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you. Um, You know, I just thought we would introduce you a bit to our listeners. So please tell us a little bit about yourself, sort of where you come from and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing now. Like what got you into climate change and especially the communications angle of your work? Sure. So I got into climate change because I sort of built my career in nonprofit communications. I'd always been drawn to to editing. Like I, I love helping people to sort of find their voice. My last job, I was at the William T. Grant Foundation, where they do really great work on um, social science research and children, youth in the United States in particular. That was where I learned that I love editing sort of like wonky stuff, right? But when I left there, I knew that I wanted to work on what to me was the most important thing in the world or the most important story in the world, so to speak. And I decided that that was either public health or climate change. Mm. Um, and I now know that those are not different things. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so uh, I was very drawn to the environmental sector and I I went to the Natural Resources Defense Council, and I was policy publications editor, which meant that I learned a whole lot in climate change. I pretty much got like a PhD there. And the writing sort of came about in the past year. I used to write a lot when I was like in high school and college, and then I sort of became a professional editor. And it's really difficult to kind of use those two sides of your brain at the same time. Hmm. And so I don't know exactly how it happened, but suddenly the writer in me went from dormant to active. And that was actually like right around this time last year. Wow. Well, I'm really glad that it did because, um, and I think the first story of yours or the piece of yours that I read was about environmental degradation in the South and sort of some close encounters and personal encounters that you had with like landscapes that you had grown up with. So you're from the South originally. Yes, I am. Um, I was born in Talladega, Alabama, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and also in Port Gibson, Mississippi. And yeah, I've got family all over in Louisiana and Tennessee. So I do feel like a kinship with the whole region. So just out of curiosity, I mean, have you, because you live in uh, New York now today, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like there are sort of different kinds of conversations around climate change between like where you work and then when you visit the places that you grew up? Yeah, you hear much more tangible conversations about climate change in the South, I feel like. I feel like I hear a lot of people talking about it, but not really knowing that they're talking about it. Like, Mm. I hear a lot of winter's not what it used to be. 
or just complaining about the heat in the summer in a way that people didn't used to complain about it that much anymore, or noticing the overabundance of mosquitoes all of a sudden, mm-hmm. right? Like it wasn't quite like that when you were a kid or how low the Mississippi River is at a given time and how much is flooding more often now than it used to. So they're, they're talking about climate change, and I'm not hearing people deny it. They certainly accept it. There seems to be a bit more powerlessness about it. Also, it feels more immediate at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's not just a sort of existential or theoretical idea. It's like part of your lived experience. It's like not just something sort of on it like that you vote on or, or um, mm-hmm. you know, just like read an op-ed about. It's like you're, you're really living it in sort of in a really immediate way, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that actually kind of gels with some of the things I hear from people who live even here in rural Maine, where, you know, maybe they might not even necessarily frame some of the problems people are dealing with around climate change, but they notice, you know, oh, the communities that I work in, in, you know, fisheries or forestry, mm-hmm. you know, are, are definitely starting to notice the impacts. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited again to have you here with us and for this conversation today and and hopefully conversations in the future too. So um, yeah, I'm excited. I, yeah, I think you'll bring a lot to our show. Well, in these very long and dark uh, winter months that we're just finally now coming out of uh, up here in the frozen north, uh, I've been trying to kind of commit to spending more of my time in the evenings reading and. I've been reading a book on emotional labor, actually. It's called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. And a lot of you might have heard the term emotional labor. It's made the rounds in a few articles about the division of work and effort at home and how a lot of women's work in general is just invisible. And it's often kind of defined in fuzzy terms, but it basically means the effort that it takes to manage feelings and expectations around the emotional requirements of a job. And so these could be your emotions or managing the emotions of others. So everything from, you know, remembering birthdays in your family to noticing that something needs to be cleaned or fixed, or even the act of performing politeness when a customer yells at you and you have to maintain that facade to keep your job in the face of abusive behavior. You know, all of these are examples of of emotional labor. And you can imagine the ways in which that might drain you or sort of pull your attention or your energy in a million different directions during the course of a day. Unsurprisingly, it turns out there's research on this and women do a lot of emotional labor and women of color do even more emotional labor. And that contributes to inequalities both at home and in the workplace. And so what's interesting is that even when we think the division of labor is equal, so if you were to poll people in terms of how much housework they do or childcare they do, we still find that women are doing the majority of this invisible and uncredited work, and it takes a huge toll. It really wears away at you to constantly have to notice everything and advocate for yourself and others around you. And like so many gendered behaviors, this capacity to do emotional labor is taught. There's nothing biological about this. Women aren't inherently more likely to remember that we need vegan options at the departmental lunch or to notice that the socks somehow just never managed to make it into the hamper. There's nothing biological about that. We're actually taught to care for others and to put their needs first. And this starts at a really young age, it turns out. 
And so emotional labor is just one of the many ways in which women are socialized to solve problems or even to identify that those problems exist in the first place. And so as long as these imbalances persist, we will continue to face barriers to inclusion. Women are basically paying a tax of our time and our energy, and that tax contributes to all sorts of inequalities at work, at home, and in the representation of women in all sorts of industries. I'm not trying to overstate this. I'm, I'm not saying that emotional labor is the main reason women are underrepresented in Congress or receive fewer Nobel Prizes in the sciences, but it's just one of the less maybe visible ways in which these inequalities persist, even in households or workplaces that you might otherwise think are actually pretty egalitarian. So I've been really grateful to see this shift in the conversation because the problems of gender equality just cascade in so many ways, just like climate change, right? The sort of threads that touch everything from healthcare to the environment. And we've talked about some of these on past episodes, particularly about harassment of women in the sciences and how that affects our research and our sort of persistence and our, our visibility. So I'm really excited to talk to today's guest because she deals with issues of gender equality and climate change head on, among many other things, and how they intersect in often surprising ways. And in fact, in one of my all-time favorite TED Talks, she goes so far as to say that addressing the empowerment of women and girls is one of the easiest ways that we can stop global warming. So our guest today is Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, Vice President of Communication and Engagement at Project Drawdown. She comes from an interdisciplinary background spanning academia, business, and the social sector, and she even wrote a book on climate change and the evangelical movement. So Katherine, we are so excited to have you on the show today. I am so excited to be on the show with two of my favorite humans on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel like we should have like a, I don't know, a sound effect or like a, a little fist bump gif or something. In the, this is the problem with audio media, right? Like there's no gifing. Like I need, I need a gif to yeah, express so my we happiness. Yeah, so about it on the Twitter machine. We could do that, right? Yeah, like, we can have a gift fest. We could get very meta. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> if you think I don't have memes lined up in my head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm serious though. Like I note to our editors, can we get some sound effects in here? Because <laughs> that would be really great. Um, so I, I love your passion about the connection between climate change and gender equity. Mm. And I was wondering when and how did you discover that connection? Like what was that moment like for you? I'm not sure that there was a moment and maybe in a way that I am a little bit embarrassed about, I feel like it took me a long time to connect these dots. Mm. Like I very much saw myself as a feminist. I was involved in organizations, including Planned Parenthood for many years, but I didn't, I, I sort of thought like, well, that's one hat I wear. And then most of the time I wear this kind of environmentalist climate mm -hmm. hat. I think in general, this kind of conversation about this nexus of gender and climate and women's leadership for a livable planet, this all seems to be on the rise mm -hmm. at the moment. And so when I joined the team at Project Drawdown to, to work on bringing our, our book by the same name, Drawdown, uh, to life and particularly to write this section of the book that focuses on solutions that relate to gender equity. You know, it was like, oh, I felt like I was finally knitting together things that I had been thinking about for a long time, but had never pulled into, into one coherent mosaic. 
That's really beautiful. And you have a, a background in geography, right? Which is uh, what my degrees are in. And one of the things I love about geography is it's sort of the original interdisciplinary discipline that allows you to pursue some of these kinds of questions about these intersections among people and the environment in ways that are really hard to do when you're coming out of traditional science departments or, or even in the humanities. Crossing those barriers, I think, can be really difficult. Being trained as a climate scientist, oftentimes, you know, we don't necessarily get an exposure to social justice or, or human impacts of our work, which I think is really unfortunate. And so we're often kind of stuck in these disciplinary silos. And so it's just really cool to see people like you who are able to sort of navigate all of these different perspectives in a really deft way. So do you feel like your sort of geography background helps you in terms of navigating some of these different disciplines? Thank you. <laughs> um, I had um, my supervisor in undergrad had a saying that specialization is for insects. And I took that, I think, um, very seriously <laughs> and, and probably continue to. So yeah, I, I think geography for sure. And even before that, as an undergraduate, I studied religion, actually, which I found was kind of the department that allowed for asking all of the big questions and cut across ethics and social change and anthropology and history and literature. I loved that smorgasbord <laughs> sort of experience <laughs> and wrestling with big ideas and big questions about what it means to be human. And then I think the sort of even earlier chapter, my sophomore year in high school, I spent four months living in the woods of Western North Carolina at a place called the Outdoor Academy, living with 25 kids, like 10 girls in a one room cabin and chopping wood to heat the cabin. And we continued to do kind of schoolwork, but it had a very directed focus around sustainability, environmental studies, environmental science. And that experience was like reading Mary Oliver and Annie Dillard, but also studying the natural history of the Appalachians and experiencing clear cuts in Pisgah National Forest firsthand and also working in our garden, right? And so mm -hmm. I think the reality for me is that all of these things have kind of been intertwined from the very beginning of thinking about myself as someone committed to the health and future of this planet. So you and I have two things uh, in common. We're both Southerners. I know you're from Atlanta. <laughs> yep. um, and you're also uh, a communicator like me. And I'm sure you've run up against this too, that people often think of the environmental movement as mostly scientists and policy hogs and you know some sort of wonk of some ilk. But from one communicator to another, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this work? Like what was your entry point? into environmentalism as a career? Sure. So I'm going to blow your mind, maybe. <laughs> um, but the one other thing we have in common is, well, I'm sure there are many things, but my first job out of undergrad was with NRDC. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so there was a... <laughs> A guy named Alan Hershkowitz, who was a senior yes. scientist, yeah, yeah um, at the time, who was like, you know, crazy enough to hire this 22 year old with no useful experience and a religion degree um, uh -huh. <laughs> to, to work on what was at the time this project that was focused on land and forests on the Cumberland Plateau. Mm -hmm. So Alan was in New York, but I was spending a lot of my time.
time in rural Tennessee. It was actually a really formative year because I was so struck by how much the mainstream environmental movement headquartered as it is in New York and San Francisco and DC was just speaking right past most of America, that the sort of the stories weren't connecting and Yet my experience of working with county mayors and landowners and Phil Bredesen was the governor at that time with his team in Nashville was like, I was interacting with lots of folks who really cared about place and really cared about land, but the dots just weren't connecting. It wasn't a conversation, right? It was just kind of (laughs) dialogues, like scooting right past one another. That same year, a group called the Evangelical Climate Initiative launched with a full-page ad in the New York Times that said, our commitment to Jesus Christ compels us to solve the global warming crisis. And then when it launched, 85 or so very high-profile evangelical leaders had signed on to it. And I thought, you know, I was studying religion, kind of paying attention to this intersection of religion and environment. And it totally surprised me, like, where did this come from? And it struck me that they were telling some very different stories that were really interesting and might kind of create openings for movement around public engagement and political will. And so I headed off to to Oxford for graduate school and ended up staying there doing a PhD in the Department of Geography and Environment and really exploring where this movement came from, the stories it was telling, to what extent those were resonating or not among the church-going public, the backlash from the more conservative evangelical right, all kinds of great like American culture, politics, religion, climate change, like all the things that you are not supposed to talk about over Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) And so that chapter for me, pun not intended, um, was really about kind of sitting on the sidelines as an academic and understanding and looking at other people's and other organizations' attempts at climate communication. It left me with a number of very strong and in, and to some extent unreconcilable criticisms of the secular mainstream environmental movement. I was finishing that work, finishing my PhD in 2009, when it looked like we had the best chance in a generation to pass federal climate policy and we got it through the House, but not through the Senate. And then the international negotiations in Copenhagen fell apart. And it was just this like incredibly depressing bottoming out sort of moment for the climate movement. I think that on top of just like the malaise that you feel at the end of a PhD, which is like (laughs) such Mm -hmm. a depressing experience in its entirety. I just was like, I don't know. I don't know what role to play in Mm. this world, this climate world. I don't know where a hopeless interdisciplinarian sits. I took some time to turn my PhD research into a book between God and Green. And then I really stepped away for a few years and worked in other spaces, the intersection of business and social impact. But I kept feeling this tug, right, to work on this set of issues. And when I encountered Drawdown, I just thought, There's so much here that meets what felt to me like really important 
needs in the climate space. And it just so happened that what the team really needed was someone who was comfortable writing about a hundred different climate solutions <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and across all of these different sectors and kind of playing that curation and translation role. And the truth is I have always loved to write. I actually really thought I would be an English professor towards the end of high school. So in some ways, I think it just took me, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years to figure out Mm -hmm. how to pull all of these different threads together in a way that felt authentic and felt like I was able to kind of bring some of the best parts of myself to this world. As an English major, I would have loved to have had an English professor who was like crunk about climate. (laughs) (laughs) I would have like made my day. I just also think like so much of what you just said makes me think about the idea of ownership around climate change and who Mm -hmm. how, how certain communities or groups of people seem to act like we own both the problem and the solutions, right? Or the narrative around climate or how we how we approach those solutions and how that false sense of ownership, because you know, we we are all in this together, although there are barriers to that togetherness. That yeah. sense of ownership like shuts people out or shuts out certain voices. And it's one of the reasons that I was really excited to see your TED talk about women and girls in particular too, both from the perspective of the impacts and who's vulnerable to climate change, but also like the ways forward and the solutions and thinking about lifting up some of these voices that may not have been considered part of that ownership team, if you will. And so you and others have said that women are the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So what does that mean? Like, why, why is that? Why are women more likely to sort of feel those emergent impacts soonest and hardest? So I, th- I think it helps to, I think this is military language, actually, the idea of climate change as a threat multiplier. But it is very true also at the level of an individual or a family or a community. Part of what makes climate change so powerful is that it can make already tenuous situations or existing vulnerabilities worse. So in situations where women have less access to resources, decision-making tables, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it means that you are less equipped right? when challenges hit, whether those are long-term challenges like seasonal changes that make it harder to grow food and figure out, you know, what are the right crops and when do we plant and when do we harvest and how do we navigate drought to the more extreme kind of sudden impacts of climate, right? Natural disasters, floods. And what we see is that women and girls face greater risk of displacement as well as death from natural disasters. Folks have connected the dots between droughts and floods to early marriage and sexual exploitation and sex trafficking. When we think about some of the tasks that women and girls are responsible for in many societies, collecting water, collecting fuel, growing food, right? These are really challenging and time-consuming tasks, period. And then climate change can deepen the burden with ripple effects for health, education, financial security, all the rest. This piece of the gender climate nexus is probably getting the most attention. The way in which climate change, in some sense, is violence against women and girls, particularly under conditions of poverty. 
And it's why we're hearing so many calls for gender responsive strategies around resilience and adaptation, which I think is is fantastic and so, so necessary. But oftentimes, I think, forget the other piece of the story, the kind of dynamic that's playing out in tandem, which is that if you have climate change deepening gender inequities on the one hand, advancing gender equity is a solution on the other. Mm -hmm. So how do we fix this? What do you think is the way forward for empowering women? We're just going to dismantle <laughs> you the patriarchy. You have all the answers. Oh, oh, that's all we have to do? Yeah, that's it. I, oh my gosh, I have been like wrecking my brain. <laughs> I know, it's actually very, very simple. My, my like order for the patriarchy crowbar has been on delay from Amazon for such a long time. It was supposed to be on top. No, like, you got to go time, yeah. Damn Jeff Bezos. <laughs> On this very note, I was very frustrated at one of these weird conferences that are the kinds of things that Anand Giridharadas just rips apart in his new book, Winners Take All, right? Of kind of do-gooders coming together to sort of pat themselves on the back, but the kind of impact is questionable. At this particular gathering, there was just like a absolute rush for a fireside chat with Jeff and his brother, whose name escapes me. One of the topics was kind of his thoughts on what we do to save the planet. And his main thought on what we do to save the planet is to colonize Mars. Uh, oh, yeah. First of all, why so do we always kill ask another you? planet yeah. to save this? Right, right. And like, why do we always ask these dudes these questions? Like, why would Jesus <laughs> know? Why? Yeah. And I just thought, you know what, dude? Amazon is really good at distribution. That is what you guys have really figured out. The latest statistic is that there are 214 million women who report an unmet need for contraception. So why don't you guys figure out (laughs) how to provision the things that women say they need and want and don't have into places Mm -hmm. where it may be hard to get them? That is not the whole picture um, of family planning and reproductive rights by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like, you actually do have a really powerful skill set that could be leveraged for one piece of this puzzle. Or like, why don't you guys also figure out how to pick up composting and recyclables? Mm -hmm. Like when you drop things off, like really Mars? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Just like it felt so arrogant and so dismissive of this incredible planet. Mm Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, that is how he could say, like, I think that's how a lot of rich people feel that they can save themselves. Like, when you right. say, how do we save the planet? They're thinking, <laughs> how do I save myself? That's right. Like, yeah. What's my exit strategy? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, screw the rest of you guys. Right. Oh, that's right. so telling. Right. Because it's like, you're, you know, your first impulse would be to think, like, what do I do well? What can I contribute? But no, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to pick some moonshot idea, literally, and um, we'll make it work, uh-huh. right? It's not a problem. Cause it's I, not a problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, the, you know, when this message started coming out, it really seems like such an obvious way forward, especially when you put it that way, you know, that the risk is greatest. And we have these kind of low-hanging fruit solutions and maybe even the distributive infrastructure to start to address them. Yet, we don't seem to be making progress on the sort of empowerment of women and girls front in a lot of ways. And, and so I was going to ask, do you think that part of the problem is the lack of women in the room or women on these panels where these decisions are made? Or is it that the people in positions of power, you know, the deciders 
are men and they're just dismissive of the issue. Like, you know, do you get a lot of pushback for these ideas? Are people kind of blowing you off for the more glittery, attractive Mars <laughs> solution that is not actually <laughs> realistic and will never happen? <laughs> mixed bag. I think that there have been some folks who I would put in the camp of being some of the most educated and resourced climate leaders in the world who have said, I had a total blind spot about this. My organization, my foundation, whatever, we weren't doing anything on the intersection of women and girls and climate. And this has helped us to move. And then you also get the like, it is so incredibly sexist <laughs> to talk about a gender dimension of climate change because somehow, I don't know, I, I don't really understand the logic of these men, but they seem very angry and very prolific on the interwebs. So I think there are some areas where we are seeing some fantastic progress. We've seen great momentum, particularly in education for girls of primary school age. There's a, a long way to go still in secondary school classrooms, but there's been some great progress there. We actually are seeing or have seen a slight reduction in women who say they have, quote unquote, unmet need for contraception. Unfortunately, policy changes domestic and international by the Trump administration are set to worsen that statistic. The latest study we have in the US is that 45% of pregnancies still are unintended. So there's a lot of need, but there has been some movement. We see that there's a big funding gap. There's one study that looked at philanthropic dollars going specifically toward women and the environment. And that's everything from climate adaptation to agriculture to like the whole kit and caboodle. It's just $110 million globally each year, which is 0.2% of philanthropic funds. I mean, it's nothing. It is a drop in the bucket. I said sort of cheekily in the TED talk that that is the same amount of money that that one dude spent on a Basquiat painting in 2017, right? I feel like so impactful relative to the amount spent. Right, right. And we still see right at COP that there's not equal representation of women at the table. All of those things are challenging. And yet we are seeing women's leadership on climate and girls' leadership on climate just keep rising. You don't have to look any further than the school strikes that are happening around the world, which are basically entirely organized by teenage girls, mm -hmm. which is just mm -hmm. amazing. Um, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, she has a, this wonderful podcast, Mothers of Invention, which full disclosure, I have helped advise on a little bit and appeared on last season. But the tagline is just the best, that climate change is a man-made problem with feminist solutions, right? Like, Despite the challenges, despite the lack of investment, despite the lack of seats at the table, despite often women being silenced or ignored, still this momentum is happening. And I really do believe like in the deepest part of my gut and my bones that if humanity is going to do what we need to do, particularly in the next decade, our best chance is if we have an uprising of women to lead it. Absolutely. So 
In your TED Talk, you said something that, that really resonated with me. You said actually a lot of things that resonated with me. But you said that the knowledge of climate change is like carrying around a broken heart with you every day. Mm. And that a heart can either break or it can break open. And that just sent chills through mm. my body. And I was wondering, what was the moment like when your heart broke? And how did you move past just a plain broken heart? to an open broken heart? Mm. I think it's a, it's a repeating cycle, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. honest. I mentioned that moment of like walking out into a clear cut in Pisgah National Forest, which if you have never spent time in Western North Carolina, it is one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. And to walk, <laughs> walk out of this kind of lush, thriving beautiful forest and into just a completely denuded ridgeline was pretty transformative for me, not intellectually, right? But in a much kind of deeper emotional heart sense. The work of Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker author and teacher and longtime kind of thought leader about the inner work that it takes to do the outer work of transformation in the world. Parker has has had a big influence on me. And he talks about the work before the work, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that seemingly semantically really subtle shift from a broken heart to a broken open heart that is the work before the work. Mm -hmm. I have found that when I when I come into this work only from a broken heart. I don't do myself or anyone else very much good. <laughs> right? Mm. Like think about like your worst horrible heartbreak breakup, right? You're just like you're on the oh, couch right in the fetal position like you're right. you, know, you are not like you're not creative, you're not collaborative, you're not like you're not doing anything useful. But when you can kind of stay rooted in your own grief but more expansive at the same time. And particularly to move in some way is a really critical piece. And a broken heart to me feels very static um, mm-hmm. and, and stuck. Mm-hmm. And a broken open heart somehow is about getting into a more generative place. The things that have helped me get there have always been animals and kind of kindred spirits and and being in nature. It makes me think too about how, you know, to do this work, we often come from a place of love. And even those of us who are scientists, we're put on this path, which is often a really difficult path, because we care about something. We have these close encounters yeah. with nature or places that really promote us to address these problems because we believe that they're really pressing problems because we see the impacts of those problems before our very eyes. And we love the places that we live and work in and we want to take care of them. And so one thing that people are often asking me as a scientist is how do you get up every day and do this work? How do you keep going? Mm -hmm. How are you not overcome with the sort of existential angst of, of climate change? And, you know, thinking about, you know, women in particular and how we often talk about self-care and Mm. even in ways that are kind of denigrated, right? Like, oh, you know, women in their their bubble baths or whatever. Um, (laughs) It's kind of stereotypical at this point. But yeah, yeah, so like what does self-care look like for us in in this age of climate change? Like how do we like, what what is the equivalent of that pint of ice cream for the broken heart when we're talking about the planet? Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to answer that 
But first, I have to say what made me really sad, there was a section about love at the end of the TED Talk that got cut in edit. Uh, (laughs) Um, Because I wanted to come back to that piece about a broken open heart, right? About both honoring grief, honoring anger, honoring fear, but also reaching deeper to the love that it grows out of. And to help people have that moment of like, because you love what you love, whatever it is, right? a child, a place, a culture, an ideal, whatever it is that you love, you have a stake in this challenge. And in fact, you are already part of this mission, right? You have already been called into the work of weaving a life-giving future. You don't have to change anything about what you care about, right? The investment is already there. And I loved Catherine Hayhoe was just on CBS this morning. And, you know, she was like, get out of your head and into your heart. And I'm like, where was that in the climate movement like 15 oh, years ago? No. <laughs> like, the evangelicals were talking about it, you know, the, the folks that I interviewed in that work, but not most of the climate movement. Which is um, so funny because right. like now, you know, all the, all the, the science of science communication, especially when climate change is telling us it's all about empathy and building trust. And, you know, it's not actually about facts. And it's like, we've been doing it wrong all this time. (laughs) And still, I got a little um, sassy with Al Gore on Twitter the other day. And I've only been tweeting for about six months. So still uncharted territory. (laughs) But it's like this thing of like, yeah, fear, right? We just got to scare the ever loving poop out of people. Panic. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to be great. You know, and it's like, no, (laughs) we've been doing that. We have been trying that for so long. And honestly, it's not that hard to scare people. What's really hard, I think, is to get folks to take the leap from awareness to some kind of ownership, right? That's what's hard. And even to create space for them to do that or feel like they can, right? I I think we keep coming back to this idea of your ideas are okay too, right? You're... You have valid contributions to make to this movement because we all are sharing this planet. And, you know, you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be, you know, an elected official or whatever to be impactful and to have valid ideas about the way forward. Totally. Okay. Now I will try to answer your question about (laughs) (laughs) self-care. Asking for a friend. (laughs) Totally asking for a friend. I spent so much of my adolescence and my early adulthood being a really high achiever in the academic world, which meant even though I was studying religion in undergrad, which is, you know, allows, I think, for a more holistic participation of self in the classroom. Still, I was like very, very invested in the mind, right? (laughs) And it took me a long time to figure out how to take my spiritual life and health seriously, particularly because there's not a religious tradition that I feel drawn to. And so kind of navigating that, right, took me a while. And I think there are two components to that that are really critical One is getting out of the head and and into the heart, but particularly doing that in community. And what has become really the cornerstone of my sanity and self-care and nourishment is a kind of monthly circle that I am a part of in Atlanta. It's not only women, but it is mostly women and has a very 
Shakti sort of vibe. <laughs> you know, it has absolutely nothing to do with climate change, but it has totally transformed my ability to do this work. I don't think that that's a, a recipe necessarily, but I think the circle actually has been such a powerful structure for so much of human history. And you just think about all of the metaphors and also all of the ways that a circle actually works. And I think there is something really powerful there. Also, sometimes just bourbon, I find, is a really good self-care strategy. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I've been at the nurse for a bit for something, and I'm not able to drink, and it's just, it's, it's a sad time. <laughs> what do you all think about the self-care of climate leadership, climate engagement? You know, that's tough. I feel like it changes every once in a while for me. Mm. Um, I'm not above bourbon. <laughs> um, and, but also animals, uh, mm. just being mm. around animals is helpful to me. Mm -hmm. Seeing them in their natural habitats is, is somehow healing. Being outdoors is healing. Writing is also healing. It's like a yeah. catharsis. So that's uh, a large part of where that came from. And just connecting with other people mm -hmm. who are doing the same work in the same space and a nice Netflix binge. <laughs> I feel like just never hurt anybody. Um, <laughs> but I, at the same time, trying to balance it out with things like, I, I read a lot of James Baldwin. Like one of my party mm. tricks is I can just like whip out a James Baldwin quote. <gasps> and my Twitter mm. trick is I can whip out a Beyonce gift <laughs> in the moment. So just know that. Um, both of those people provide me with a great deal of, of self-care. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I would say for, for me, it's kind of a, it's it's also a range. Yeah, sometimes being, even in just around my students and, and feeling their energy is really empowering. I also, I tend to be, um, you know, one of those people for whom something like a facial or a pedicure is really effective, uh, not necessarily even because I care how it makes me look. I, I just love the sort of tactile feeling of just kind of getting back in my body because I spend so much time in my head, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so, you know, just having someone paint things on my face for an hour, just while I let my mind wander, I just find... It just is something I need to happen, you know, once every few months. And I'm really mm -hmm. lucky to be in a place uh, now where I can do things like that for myself, really for the first time in my life. And that's been really nice, mm -hmm. kind of a nice perk of upward mobility. You finally get what all the fuss is about and also just appreciate just, you know, how some of these so-called self-care things are, are not necessarily open to everyone. And for me, one of the other ones is kind of in the opposite extreme in that um, I love video games. And so sometimes, <laughs> you know, retreating both into books and, and, you know, movies or whatever, but also also into these sort of other worlds where I can be someone with agency. Because <laughs> uh, in video mm -hmm. games, you often have this outsized sense of agency. You're literally saving the galaxy and Mass Effect. And, you know, I've been playing, kind of coming back to this game Fallout 4 over and over again, where it's this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And one neat thing about this iteration of the game is that there's this building feature where you can actually create settlements and build little houses and scavenge little things in, in the wilderness and bring them back. And, and so I actually really, this is going to sound so messed up. I've, I've been playing the game again lately and I'm not doing any of the quests. I'm just basically going around downtown post-apocalyptic Boston and I'm gathering things for these cartoon people in my game, these settlers that like I attract to my, my little settlements. And I'm like, I'm going to make them a really nice, you know, restaurant. I'm going to like build them a library. And, and, and I just feel like I'm creating something better and like making the world a better place for these people, even though they're not real. And I find that really comforting because I actually feel like I'm accomplishing something. And sometimes in my 
day-to-day life. I just don't. There's a little happiness rating for your settlement. So like if I can get that up, you know, above 85%, like, I don't know, it makes me pretty happy because I'm like, I brought you a cake pan. Now you can make cake for each other, right? I mean, it's total fiction in my in my mind, but it's like taking this post-apocalyptic wasteland restoration approach to, um, mm. you know, maybe I'm getting some skills for the future. I don't know, but it makes me feel better. I, I love that there's a happiness rating. It's very gross national happiness, joy quotient. Like I, <laughs> I love that. The stuff that makes the settlers happy in these communities is like art like rugs, paintings, mm. but also things like, you know, having a store, you know, so it's like they just, you know, they like to have things that aren't necessarily, you know, essentials, like the food doesn't make them happy. Although if you don't feed them, they get unhappy. It's like post-apocalyptic Sims, basically. My video game would be a horse. <laughs> I have joked that there are like invisible hoof prints dancing all the way through Drawdown because that's how I was staying sane <laughs> during that project. Something like just deeply meditative, maybe the only thing that I really do where I totally get into flow for a long time. Not to mention like these big, awesome creatures who smell so good. And (laughs) and that like somehow you're able to be in this like wild communication with. That's a, I just think a really great place to, I think, to wrap up because this idea of just connection and and all of the things that are both healing and also the reason that we do this in the first place. Um, So Mm. thank you for reminding me of why we do what we do and why it's so important. You all are just wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Likewise, this is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. I feel like we could have gone on for another hour. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's been great. So we'll we'll kind of wrap up now and transition to a a newish segment that we're calling the unexpected science of climate change. Um, You all wanted more science and and we're going to give it to the people. And so so for today's riff on the unexpected science of climate change, we'll briefly talk about a new study that just came out in Nature Geosciences, and it's made a lot of headlines this week. It's all about clouds and how, how when you get very very high levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we might actually see the disappearance of stratocumulus clouds. So those are those low, dense clouds that cover as much as 20% of the Earth's subtropical oceans, and they end up reflecting as much as of a third of the sun's energy. So they actually play a pretty big role in kind of mediating the climate system. So... I read a little bit about this study today, and I am not a real life expert. I just, I'm like expert adjacent. I know a lot of experts. So I want to see if I actually understood it. And you can (laughs) tell me if I did or didn't. So basically, if we keep going the way that we're going, there's a chance, we don't know for sure or not, but there's a chance that we could chase away all of our clouds, like literally chase them away. If we do that, the earth gets a whole lot hotter. And one of the things that really struck me is that this could actually explain other periods of crazy warming in the Earth's history. This could have potentially happened before. And that at one point, there were crocodiles in the Arctic. Yeah, what's really cool about studies like this is they, you know, we see these periods in Earth's deep past, like there's this event known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. So about 55 million years ago, we see, you know, the world is so much warmer that you get no ice anywhere. You get palm trees and crocodiles in the Arctic. And, you know, we know that CO2 levels 
were as much as 4,000 parts per million. The problem is we don't actually see CO2 levels rising that much in the records where we have them. So what's interesting about this study is you only have to have CO2 levels of about 1,300 parts per million. And so just for reference, we're at about 400 right now. So we hope we don't get anything close to 1,300, let alone 4,000. But if you have these kind of interesting feedbacks or sort of runaway processes where if you take the clouds out of the system, they're not bouncing that much of the sun's energy out, then you can actually warm the planet more just by changing kind of the rules of how the earth traps heat. It's always been kind of a mystery as to how the PETM, this really hot event, was able to get so warm that you were able to see crocodiles in the Arctic, which is, you know, wild. It's it's mm-hmm. it's totally unlike anything we would see today. And so it's kind of scary to think about how the earth system can kind of run away from us like this. And yet we, you know, we have these kind of tipping points or sort of points of no return that we often talk about in the Earth's climate system. This is, I think, was kind of a big surprise for a lot of folks, this idea that if you warm the planet up enough, then it kind of changes how clouds form. And by chasing away the clouds, by kind of taking away the conditions that you need for clouds to form, that can just trigger this extra uh, warming that you know has nothing to do with how much carbon dioxide's in the atmosphere. And that might explain mm-hmm. why it got so warm in these geologic periods in the past, but also, you know, it's a kind of a scary way for warming to kind of be exacerbated going into the future. So yeah, you were exactly right. That's sort of the thinking behind this paper. You know, these sort of tipping points arguments are often really hard to pin down, but this one is is a pretty compelling study. And hopefully we don't, we don't get anywhere close to that much to, you know, levels of like 1200 or 1300 parts per million of, of CO2, because then we might start to see these processes unfold. So can I ask a dumb question? Please, there are no dumb questions, but yeah. So these particular types of clouds are not the only types of clouds that we have, but are they the only types of clouds that perform this function of tracking? Oh, that's actually a really good question because, and I don't, yeah, and I I think, so I think because they're, so the answer is it's complicated and I don't know, but also kind of broadly, the scientific community doesn't have as good of a handle on clouds as we would like in terms of how they influence climate change because clouds both trap heat and they also bounce heat back. And so clouds have been this sort of mm-hmm. big frontier in climate science. And you know, if you're interested in getting into climate research and you love physics, go into the study of clouds because you know we desperately need to nail down some of these questions. If you live in a cold place like I do in Maine, we know that if the night is clear, mm-hmm. it's going to be really cold in the wintertime. But if we have clouds, then it's going to be a lot warmer, right? Because clouds are kind of like a blanket that's sort of trapping some of that heat. But clouds also can be reflectors. And so nailing down what kinds of clouds are blankets versus reflectors is important. And where the clouds are also makes a difference. So the fact that this particular kind of cloud that was in the study, these stratocumulus clouds, they tend to show up more near the tropics. They might play a bigger role as reflectors because they're sort of low and flat. Because Mm -hmm. clouds do both things, they are super complicated and hard to model. So one of the nice things about the study is they kind of stripped away a lot of the complicating factors and just focused on this one particular kind of cloud. That's why Mm -hmm. I think the study was really successful. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line just comes down to we need to cut down on fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, I know. It always comes back down to that. Unfortunately, (laughs) getting getting to Mars is not the solution. It's like just reducing our fossil fuel use um, again, because we're, you know, we're over 400 parts per million CO2 now, and we don't want to get anywhere close to, you know, a thousand or more um, 
And even if we got to that point, there would be so many other things wrong just in terms of ocean acidification and warming that I think by then we'd already have some serious problems. But in case we needed another reason, this is a good reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I talk to experts all the time, but it's not every day that I get to talk to an ice age ecologist. So I do want to ask, what is the deal with crocodiles? Yeah. Like, how are they still crocodiles here? Crocodiles are, are really cool. They, um, they've been around, like, pretty much using the same strategy for 200 million years. Like, they predate dinosaurs. You know, they survived that mass extinction that the dinosaurs right. killed, killed off the dinosaurs. And they, they've <laughs> kind of figured it out. And their strategy works for them. And they... You know, they just seem to be super adaptable um, without really having to change their shape or their their approach to life very much. And nobody really knows exactly what it is about being a crocodile that kind of makes you the winners of the animal kingdom. But what we do know from the fossil yeah. record is they like nailed it 200 million years ago and they have not had to try very hard since then. Can we just like add that to the list of potential solutions? Like be yeah, a crocodile? just basically. Like I think that's a good solution. They they've hung out in periods where it's a lot warmer than today, and in times when it's colder than today, and they seem to be doing just fine. So yeah, they're really resilient. I love stories like that because you know we often focus on extinction and loss, and and so I like to look at like the mm-hmm. crocodiles of the world, and you know it's not just cockroaches, right? There are all these other winners too, and to think like, well, you know, you guys have it figured out, and. Uh, Maybe we can like draw some lessons from your approach and in terms of how how we'll be more sustainable ourselves. Yeah, seriously. I would be a crocodile in a minute. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's our show for today. Um, We really hope you enjoyed listening. Your warm regards homework this week is to spend some time learning about clouds and their influence on the Earth's climate system and to find an organization that promotes the um, empowerment of women and girls and figure out a way that, you know, you can learn more about them, maybe donate some time or money their way. Always a a great way to help out because then you can also know that you are making a difference when it comes to climate change. So in the meantime, we appreciate your help in making our show better. You can send us feedback or suggest guests at OurWarmRegards at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at OurWarmRegards. Like us on Facebook and follow our Medium page for our show notes, complete with links to all of the things that we talked about in this episode and our awesome transcripts. You can listen to all of our past episodes on your favorite podcast service, including iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Warm Regards is produced by Eric Mack and Justin Schell. Joe Stormer writes our transcripts, and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. My co-host today was Mary Anais Heglar, and I'm Jacqueline Gill. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.